Welcome to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity at Trinity International University. I'm Matthew Epinet, Executive Director of the Center. As we prepare for our 30th annual conference, June 22 through 24, available in person, online, and on demand, there is no wrong way to attend. This episode of the podcast features another of the plenary addresses from a past conference. Our speaker in this episode is the late Dr. Edmund Pellegrino, and in this address from 2002, he looks at issues of justice with respect to the physician-patient relationship. Before we get to Dr. Pellegrino's talk, now is the time to register for our upcoming conference, The Christian Stake in Bioethics Revisited, June 22 through 24. This is our 30th annual conference, and it will feature the following plenary addresses. The inaugural Virtue Ethics Lecture, the history of CBHD and of evangelical engagement with bioethics, transformation over information, bioethics meets Broadway, how shall we respond to the brain-dead body, some Christian reflections, voices from the past, advanced directives revisited, advice for young bioethicists, and bioethics yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The dates for the Christian Stake in Bioethics Revisited are Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, June 22 through 24. Visit cbhd.org and click on Annual Conference at the top of the page for more information and to register. Again, you can attend in person, online, or on demand. There is no wrong way to attend. And now, Dr. Pellegrino. Edmund D. Pellegrino, MD, was Professor Emeritus of Medicine and Medical Ethics at the Kennedy Institute of Ethics and the founding director of the Center for Clinical Bioethics, which was renamed the Edmund D. Pellegrino Center for Clinical Bioethics in his honor in 2013, at Georgetown University Medical Center. The list of his accomplishments is quite long, so let me mention only a brief few. From 2005 to 2009, he served as chairman of the President's Council on Bioethics. Dr. Pellegrino was the author of more than 600 published items in medical science, philosophy, and ethics, and he was a member of numerous editorial boards. He was the author and co-author of 23 books and the founding editor of the Journal of Medicine and Philosophy. He served as a fellow here at the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity and later as a distinguished and then emeritus fellow with the Center's Academy of Fellows. Dr. Pellegrino's research interests included the history and philosophy of medicine, moral philosophy and the virtue tradition, professional ethics, and the physician-patient relationship. Dr. Pellegrino died in 2013 at age 92. And now here is his 2002 address, The Needs of the Patient Versus the Needs of Others. John posed the question that I'm going to direct myself to this afternoon. It's a very good one because it is one that's arising increasingly and one at the bedside, one which 20 years ago really would not have been asked. It's very much in keeping with some of the things you've been hearing, particularly the question of the conflicts of conscience, which we heard about so eloquently earlier. This will be another one of the conflicts of conscience, and there will be others. The question of how the physician maintains her or his moral integrity in the face of an increasing insistence that we change, really, the medical ethics that's bound us for such a long, long time. 
I'm not going to read the long paper I have here, but rather address myself to four questions, which in a sense are summarization of the major points that I'm making in the paper. Those four questions are as follows. First, why has such a question arisen in the first place? Why are we now faced with an additional clinical dilemma which says, doctor, you should put your patient behind the needs of others, or at the very least alongside, but under certain circumstances, never first. You just heard a presentation here, some of you, on permanent vegetative state and patients in permanent vegetative state, infants with a lot of difficulties and so on, and a number of people who are involved with care which has no dramatic response, the question of should we be spending money on those patients? So why has the question come up? Second, it's a question of justice, and I hope the lawyers will forgive me, I will be speaking of the philosophical dimensions of justice and not the legal, not that they're separable necessarily fully. Third, about the varieties of justice as they apply to health care, and then how do we balance this set of conflicting obligations, because I think we do have an obligation both to society and to the individual patient. And for those of you who know ethics, you know that for the most part, it is the resolution of conflicts of obligations rather than absolute rights and absolute wrongs, although they're involved at times. But it's conflicts of obligation between two good things. And I think that's what's reflected in this particular question which is now arising certainly in the United States and has arisen in other countries as well. In the preamble to the AMA's principles of medical ethics, we have the following statement very up there early. And it's been there for quite a while in varying forms. As a member of this profession, a physician must recognize responsibility not only to patients but to society. To other health professions, you heard that from my colleague, Sister Carol Taylor, at the beginning of this conference, and to self, and then to the principles of medical ethics. Unfortunately, as you go through the rather large book of explanations of what those principles are about, no one tells you how to resolve the conflict between these sets of obligations all of which are laid out, and all of which have a certain moral foundation. I'm going to concentrate here only on the conflict between the welfare, what's right and good for this patient presenting to me now, and the welfare of those at a distance. In one sense, the conflict between the patient and the population. As I said, this is a relatively new question. Thirty years ago, or certainly when I was beginning to enter medicine, it would have been unthinkable. The answer would have been the good of my patient. That's what I'm about, and I don't concern myself with the peripheral, distant effects of that decision. 
Whether that was right or wrong is not the issue, but the point is that was the traditional medical ethic. You can search in the ethics of Hippocrates and most of the writers. There's very little mention of social ethics or the concern for the public. I think that's a deficiency, but it also shows the enormous focus of professional medical ethics on the good of the person presenting to you and to me. So much has this gotten to be a problem that now bioethicists are urging us to move away from this one-out traditional ethic to a social ethic. And I am particularly subjected to that criticism because I've written so voluminously, unfortunately, on the physician-patient relationship. And they say, you worry too much about the individual patient. That's the trouble with you clinicians. Don't you realize that your decisions have an impact at a distance? Of course I do. The question is how to resolve the conflict. And that's what I would like to look at today. And I want to put it in terms of conflict between two varieties of justice, commutative and distributive. Before I do that, why has the question arisen in the first place? Let's just take that very, very quickly. I would mention three factors. There are many others. In my own view, it's a sum total of the continuing effects of the social revolution of the mid-60s where all of the received values of our society were put to critical examination and many disposed of. Again, without entering in that, that's simply an observation on the social scene. But the three that I would suggest are the following. One is the move from the solo practice of medicine in which the physician and the patient were at the very heart of medicine. It has its defects. But we move from that to organized medicine, physicians and patients within systems. And the fascination with systems today is enormous. The gentleman who spoke about medical error didn't point out what is the trend that I see, and that is to take away the responsibility of the individual physician and say it's the system that's to blame, and we organize the system, forgetting, of course, that someone signs the order for what happens to the patient. Moral complicity is unavoidable for the physician. The second factor is, of course, the intrusion of economics at the bedside. In the past, that intrusion was simply, do you have the money to pay the fee, or doctor, that fee is awfully high, or will you accept a bag of potatoes or whatever, a kind of bartering. And I'm old enough to have been in the practice of rural medicine, and uh, at Christmas time, I had more venison than I could possibly consume, <laughs> and my patients never knew that I didn't care for venison. <laughs> but I never enlightened them on that. But the point is the intrusion of economics at the bedside, and of course, we know that the major instrumentality for that has been managed care. And the thesis behind managed care being manage the decisions of the physician and you will control the costs because the physician is responsible, as is the case, for 75% of the expenditures, my signature. 
But also part of that has been the commercialization and commodification of health care. It is not, as I tend to see it, and we've seen it in the past, as a human good, an obligation of a good society to its citizens, but it's a commodity, something to be bought and sold on the marketplace, subject to the vagaries of the forces of the marketplace, price, availability, accessibility, quality left to the marketplace, our faith in the operation of the invisible hand to bring about justice. Marketplaces are not notable for having either ethics or compassion. And the third, strangely enough, is the transition from medical ethics, which was tightly linked to the solo practice of medicine, that is to say, medical ethics confining itself to the obligations of the physician to the patient or the nurse to the patient, the individual health practitioner, to bioethics, which has become so diffuse now that it has engulfed all aspects of health care. And I have times have said in my writing that bioethics has swallowed ethics. Now, none of these comments should be taken or construed as criticisms against the fact that change has occurred. It's rather to understand the genesis of the increasing pressure on those of us who are physicians to move in this direction of putting the needs of society or the population ahead of those of our patient. So that's the first point I want to make, a series of intersecting, converging forces economic, commercial, commodification, ethical, and psychosocial. Let's look now at the problem of justice that's created by this division or multiplication of obligations of the physician to other than the good of the patient presenting. I want to mention very quickly, and in the paper I go into significant detail on the generation of the concepts of justice, but the ones I want to look at are the following, because I think they're relevant to this question. I'm going to try to resolve the dilemma by calling on the classical principles of justice, the classical ones, not John Rawls, and not Walter, and not any of the contemporary notions of justice, because they are defined by social convention, and it was pointed out this morning, when you define something by social convention, it comes anything you want it to be. No, I want to define it in terms of something that is external to medicine per se. It's ethical in origin. The classical definitions I want to look at come from Plato, Socrates, and Thomas Aquinas. Those are the origins. But basically, we're dealing with first, just the kinds, and then I'll put them in relationship to healthcare in a moment, commutative justice. Now, justice itself can be defined, and still the ancient definition is pretty good, 
rendering to another what is his or her due, or in a later version, which I'll refer to, rendering to the unequal, unequally, and to the equal, equally. You'll see that come forth in a few moments. But commutative justice deals with the individual transactions between human beings. When you enter a contract, that's one example of commutative justice in the Aristotelian conception of it. When you and I make a promise one to the other, commutative justice. Commutative justice requires if I make a promise, I keep that promise. That I offer to help you, that I keep that offer to help you. That I remain faithful, that there be fidelity to what we've agreed to, or what you've understood. That's commutative justice. Commutative justice has been the driving force for traditional medical ethics. Because we say to the patient, how can I help you? What can I do for you? And what do they understand by this? What do you understand when you come into my office? You understand, A, that I'm competent, and B, that I would use that competent in your interest and not in someone else's. Would you come if I told you that, why, yes, I will act in your interest just so long as, however, it does not deprive someone who's younger than you and more able and more valuable to society of the same treatment, who's way off in the distance, who I haven't seen, but someone has told me he's there. Commutative justice, therefore, underlies a traditional orientation to the centrality of the patient in the relationship. Incidentally, as I'm talking about doctor-patient relationship, the same applies to nurse-patient relationships. And by the way, nurses, please forgive me, I do not use the word client. I use the word patient. A client, if you look up the Latin etymology of the word, is exactly what I know the good nurse doesn't want to use, because it means someone who's a vassal, someone who's subservient to and pays tribute to another. Cleans. The Romans had clients who paid taxes to them. No, you want to talk about a patient, from the good Latin word to suffer. Someone who bears a burden, someone who comes to you, the nurse or the physician, for help. Because they've decided that they cannot confront the problem before them without your expert help. So the patient comes to you. You make an implicit promise when you say, what can I do for you? When you step up to the bedside, you're offering yourself as a healer and a helper. And you cannot deny that unless you're going to change the rules and say what I just said to you. I'll act in your interest so long as it doesn't conflict with somebody else's. Commutative justice. Distributive justice is a branch of social justice. Social justice deals with the obligations, I'm quoting the classicists now, the obligations of individuals to the common good or of the common good of society to the individual, the reciprocal relationship. 
uh, derived from Plato's notion and reinforced by and explained in more detail by Aristotle. Distributive justice. That means that a good society does in fact owe, has certain obligations to each of its citizens, to each of us who make up the common good. It also means that you and me, patient, physician, citizen, everyone has obligations to society. It's a reciprocal two-way street. So social justice, Distributive justice as one branch of that, distributive justice being from society back to the individual, and then the individual also has an obligation to the polity, to the common good. Common good is essential. I'm going to modify this in my last reflections, my part four, when I talk about the Christian conception of justice. So now I'm proceeding philosophically and then I will proceed theologically. And again, those are rather flossy terms for what I'm summarizing here and therefore not making my argument in toto. There are two other forms of justice I want to measure, mention. One I will pick up later and one I will not speak of further. Retributive justice, which has a place in healthcare as well, that is to make up for those members of a society who have not had justice in the distribution of health care. That's where we enter the notion of justice, even the secular notion of justice, as treating equals equally and unequals unequally. Those who have had an unequal distribution can only be treated justly if they were treated unequally in the sense of getting enough to close the gap for them. Mind you, that's a pagan notion. We haven't come to the Christian notion yet. And then I want to mention, and again, my legal colleagues may know this term. I'm sure they do. In book five of Aristotle's Ethics, he talks about epikaia. Epikaia is a virtue. It is a form of justice which he calls corrective justice. It's what we apply when we want to make up for the errors produced by too rigorous an application of the letter of the law. I think the courts of chancery in England were courts of equity, if I remember, is that correct? And there were courts of equity, of course, to do that from the legal point of view. I'm going to come back to it as an ethical issue in medicine. So these forms of justice apply to health care. The question raised by John Kilner when he puts this before me, should we put our patients first or society, is how we resolve the conflict between commutative and distributive justice, because we must admit that we have both forms of obligation, and physicians are not free of it. So what we have to do is look at some way of balancing, of prioritizing, because when two things are in conflict, the only way you can resolve the conflict is by making 
as powerful a statement as you can, which will indicate that one form of justice takes precedence over the other in a particular circumstance, in a particular situation. I want to approach that at the bedside, which is my charge. I want to say that at the bedside, there's a principle of moral proximity, of the fact that your obligations spread outward in concentric circles at a moral distance from the center. Let me be more specific. When I'm confronting face to face this suffering, dependent, vulnerable, anxious human being who is a patient, who is presenting before me now, I have a greater obligation by virtue of my special role in society, which gives sanction to my role as healer, by virtue of that, I must take that person, and when I'm bound to that person, then I must act in that person's interest. That's also a corollary of the fact that we have obligations to our families, some would argue against this, but most would argue, which are greater than our obligations to someone at a distant country or state who we've never seen. It is not that we don't have obligations, but there's a prioritization. And conflicts of obligations require some unraveling, some balancing of these obligations. And so the patient, because of the moral proxicity, and because of a certain kinship, believe it or not, when we tie to that one person that we have bound ourselves to by the promise of healing, by the promise of offering ourselves as healers, we have a different relationship to that person than we do to anyone else. And if that isn't so, then okay. Let us be the kind of technocrats, bureaucrats that people want us to be today. But then let's not protest that we're professionals. Because the professional is one who professes, who makes a public act of commitment to something other than his own self-interest and to the interest of another person. That's what profession means. Not having diplomas on the wall. Not having honorary degrees, which by the way, the longer you live, the more they pity you and they give them to you. <laughs> they say he's gonna die pretty soon. Let's end it. So I don't, I don't, I always try to repress that fact. But the point is, moral proximity, kinship. So when I am bound to the patient, we're now going into the order of priorities, I have to take that person's concern and make them primary. These days I'm not using the point best interest, because as the previous speaker here pointed out, that's subject to a lot of definitions. So is the one I'm going to propose, but I think it's more definitive. I have to make the morally right and good decision for this patient. Let me point out something that does not occur in ethics committees that you don't see. 
but which I think is the most important part. And that is to start out the whole process on the part of the health professionals to make some decision about what the right and good thing is. Before you enter into the psychosocial dynamics, I know they are important. I'm not the internist, you know, who's a scientist with the horn-rimmed glasses and not worrying about people. Not so, but one has to keep things in some order. As St. Thomas Aquinas said, the major purpose of the intellect is to put things in order. Intellectus solius et ordinari. For those of you who like Latin, back to the point. The point I'm trying to make here is clearly that locked into that patient by that special voluntary offering of ourselves to that person, we have incurred obligations to that person which are different and stronger than the obligations to those at a distance. Now, so at the first level then, I've been doing rounds in the pediatric intensive care unit for the last 15 years. I'm not a pediatrician, but one thing about being an ethicist, if you know how to approach matters, you rely on the clinician to give you the data. Tom Beam was asking for the data today, but then the judgment, the moral judgment, doesn't require that you be an expert in each field of medicine. Only that you have valid data input. At that level, then, the first question the ethics committee should ask is, what's the morally right and good thing to do? The second question is, and that's a complicated question, is it possible to implement it, given the psychosocial dimensions? Now that's a different kind of question. And I'm not going to go into the analysis. I simply want to point out, though, that in the ethics committee, in the one-to-one -one relationship, that commitment to what making the morally right decision, and that's what ethics is about, deciding what is the morally right thing. It's a normative exercise. It's not a process for arriving at agreement. Now, if that's the case, then, I think, for me at least at this point, it's clear that number one, then, is at the level of the patient. It happens that at that same level, I can also serve the common good in ways which I think our profession is not doing all the time. Number one, the best medicine is the most economic medicine. Rational, effective medicine which has benefit and in which the burdens do not outweigh the benefits is the most economical use of health care resources. So if we physicians were to follow that rule, I don't want to guess how many billions of dollars we'd save, but the economists give me a figure, which is frightening. I'm always afraid to mention it. It's in the billions. But that's number one. We can serve best. If we're not 
unmindful. The second one is to use the cheaper treatment when two treatments are comparable. And many is the case in which they are. The newest and the best and the latest are not necessarily the best for the patient. Having a long history in medicine, 60 years of it, I still use some very antiquated med medications, which are effective, proven effective, and which are much, much cheaper than the latest put out by the pharmaceutical industry to advance its own profit motives. Not all of them, but many of them. So that's a second principle. The third one is for the physician to ask himself or herself, is this test or this procedure going to change the way in which I treat this patient in any measurable way that will make a difference? The house staff hates to see me come on the ward. My question always is, what are you going to do with that test? What does that information going to mean to your patient? Oh, well, I'd like to know what, no, but that, we're not here to satisfy your curiosity. Is it going to change anything? If it is, okay, let's do it. If not, you're thinking sloppily. We're still now at the level of the one-to-one, -one, and we're still serving social purpose without breaking the covenant, the sacred promise, the relationship that we've established. Okay, these are just, I'm doing this quickly, so I'm not giving you all the examples. There's a second level. <clears throat> when I'm not tied to this patient and bound to that patient, and by the way, that's the answer I give when they say, well, look at this infant. It's in, been in the intensive care unit for a year. It's $150,000 a year. It's not going to be a very good child, and he'll begin to get the value judgments about somebody else's quality of life. Why are you continuing this treatment? As long as the treatment is effective, beneficial, and the burdens don't overweigh all of that, we have an obligation to keep up that treatment because that is the morally right thing to do for this patient. Turns out to be also in the patient's best interest, but that's not what I want to emphasize. So when I'm not bound to this infant, and I'm not bound to the per patient in permanent vegetative state, I can step back, and there are three levels at which I can exert my social responsibility. One, and these may seem trivial to you, but they're not done. One, as a technical expert, as a disinterested, not uninterested, disinterested observer, policymakers are seriously in want of verifiable data information. Tom Beam's question again. There pushed one way or another by irresponsible physicians and scientists who are pushing their own interests, which is a moral question, too. 
but to be a technical expert to try to give the best information you can so the policymaker can make as rational and just a decision as is possible given the limitations of medical science. We see that today in stem cell research. Molecular biologists like Dr. Weissman recently in the New England Journal of Medicine saying that the president, the president's council, and nobody in Congress, and I'm virtually quoting him, has the competence to make any decision about we should move ahead or not move ahead on stem cell research. Other experts would say something different. Where does the truth lie? How should a policymaker act when the data are in doubt? In theology, we learn never act on a doubtful conscience. In medicine, I would say, never take a strong action with implications on data which are dubious. Emergency, you may have to do that. So that's the next level. You had the first level, which was being faithful to the covenant, and still you could serve society as well as the individual. The second level as technical expert, but a disinterested one, an honest one, and seeing it as a moral obligation and not an opportunity to appeal on television. I have to be very blunt, but this is the real world we're dealing with. The third level is at the level of the moral community. We physicians and you nurses and psychologists and lawyers have all declared communally as a group that you stand for something, you stand for the interests of those you serve. You dare to say that you've got something besides your own self-interest that identifies you. What you do is make a group profession, a group public declaration, and that binds you. Now back to justice, the group can't take care of the individual patient. You know, measures they can introduce to be sure that it goes right and so on, but the focus of the group is going to have to be <clears throat> on social justice. It's a responsibility of medicine as a moral community for those of us who are physicians jointly to advance toward a just health care system one which will make available to every citizen, I'm not going to say how much, but a certain modicum of health care because you cannot flourish <clears throat> without having access to health care. Or, and everybody talks, well, health care does not change the morbidity and mortality, you know, too much medicine. No, wait a minute. There's more to medicine than changing the morbidity and mortality. It's the care of the patient, C-A-R-E, the rescue of an individual who needs help, who has pain, who's suffering. That's medicine as much as my intervention with a magic antibiotic, which of course I want to do when I can do it. We have a moral obligation. Where were we and where have we been as a profession in the debates about a health care system. 
Only too often have we been talking about our own prerogatives, about the rate of reimbursement, about what the regulations are doing to us. And there's no question the regulations are killing us. The morale of physicians has never been lower in my long years in medicine. Some of it is justified. The good ones are leaving. The sensitive ones are leaving, the ones who can't practice that way. I'm still in the clinic, and I'm wondering every day, should I stay there? I can't do medicine as I believe it should be done. Nonetheless, <clears throat> having said that, we have a responsibility, a communal responsibility, and our voices should be heard, and our voices should be heard based on the good of the patient and not the good of the profession. And it applies to medicine, it applies to nursing, it applies to allied health, it applies to clinical psychology, it applies to chaplaincy, it applies to everybody who confronts a human being in distress. That's what we're about. Where have we been heard? That debate is coming up again. I live in Washington. I see what happens. I hope we're going to be there. Our professional organizations, by and large, are failing us. They've become self-protective, quasi-unionized. And indeed, already the AMA has suggested that we should get into collaborative, <coughs> excuse me, uh, cooperative bargaining, and that a union wouldn't be unethical. Three weeks ago, a group of trauma surgeons abandoned a trauma center in Las Vegas. Years before, anesthesiologists walked off the job. At another occasion, residents in New York City walked off the job. How does one insist that one is a professional on the argument that we're going to improve care by denying care? The logic is so elementarily defective, I don't want to comment on it. We have a moral responsibility, therefore, as a moral community. And then finally, <clears throat> that's the three levels, now the fourth level, <clears throat> we are all citizens. And as citizens, we can express our own social philosophy about how the economics, social dimensions of medicine should be managed and those are your own wishes and desires, I would hope that when you take those positions in your communities and people ask you about them, you'll reflect back on the commutative and the distributive justice question and not on your own preferences. So, we have therefore a way in which we can balance this question, and I can answer John's question by saying, it is not my patient versus the population, it is my patient and the population in some order indicated by justice. Let's turn now to the last part of I want to say, and I've summarized very, very, briefly for you. What about the Christian notion? What does it mean to be a Christian physician? What does justice mean 
what is justice in the Christian perspective. And this is not denominational. It's generic for all of us who are Christians. First of all, Christian justice, however you may use that term, is not a juridical concept. It's not what we owe to others in any metrical sense that can be measured and meted out. It's justice beyond ethics, beyond secular ethics. Romano Guardini, one of the most astute commentators on these matters in his beautiful Life of Christ, Life of Jesus, said the whole of Christian ethics is beyond ethics because it goes to the Beatitudes. It goes to a source that isn't argued, a source that's been revealed to us by Jesus Christ. Christian justice is not based on merit. Go back to the classical notions, and merit is in there. Aristotle says those who merit and make the more contribution to society should get more back. Plato hints at that, too. Aquinas does not. Christian justice is responsive to inequalities. It renders to the unequal unequally. This is the end of side one. Please turn the tape over. Christian justice is responsive to inequalities. It renders to the unequal unequally. It is justice with the blindfold removed, the pans here, and it looks at you and says, this human being needs more, deserves more, because she or he is a loser in the national lottery, the natural lottery. That's the one lottery to which we're all susceptible. Where we were born, what our genes did to us, what our families have influenced us, where we are on the economic scale, education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's based on what you also heard during the course of the day or two, on the fact that we are all children of the same creator. We share the same dignity. There is no such thing as a difference between the dignity of one human and another. I make that point with such force because when I'm dealing with those who do not share a Christian view, they're dealing not in inherent dignity. They deny that. Again, going back, if I made to my legal colleague's point, by social convention, we decide who's got dignity. And that's why we talk about death with dignity. Every death is characterized by dignity because the death of a human being created in the Imago Dei. Yes, people vary in the imputed dignity, the way they appear to us, but that's not what we should be judging on. Christian justice looks at the fundamental dignity of the human being. It is the idea of corrective justice, of epikaia, 
of the classical notion of epikaya raised to the level of charity, of disinterested love. That's not what the pagans did, but at least they recognized the need for epikaya. But epikaya is the exemplification of Christian justice when it's raised to the level of charity, keeping with the teachings of Jesus. It seeks to correct those inequities of the social lottery, of the natural lottery. Now, how would this spell out for those of us as physicians, and I'm coming to my clothes, and nurses, and other health professionals at the bedside, which is still where I think the arena of medical ethics must finally demonstrate what it is we are and who we are. At the bedside, we could never, never see the patient as a unit of statistical morality. This is a persona, a human being, with as much claim on me and you as every other human being. We can't make a suitable sacrifice of some people with less utility to society or less quality of life as we perceive it, those little infants and so on, who are costing us money. We can't. We must look at the common good, but through the eye of that one presenting to us concretely here and now. We focus on the suffering person who, as you know in the Gospels, and many of us theologically, would equate that person with Christ's suffering. Again, for those of us who like Latin, Christus patiens, Christ the patient. And he was also Christus medicus, Christ the physician. Christian justice is not unmindful of social justice. It puts them in order. The good Samaritan stopped by the roadside and didn't ask, when I bring this injured man to the hotel, am I depriving the next person I might meet who's hungry, etc., etc., etc. Christian justice regards us as members of a community, interrelated, the principle of solidarity. We do not live in isolation. What we do does have an impact on others. So you see, it recognizes exquisitely this notion of the impact at a distance. It doesn't deny it. It calls on us, however, as a society to look at our obligations in toto as a common polity to this person. It recognizes, just as Aristotle did, that the human being cannot be fulfilled outside of social engagement.
Christian justice. Now the painful part. If we were to translate that into health care policy, which means a policy that would be built on the principles of justice, distributive justice being clearly an obligation of a good society, each of us who are members of society and who are able financially have the obligation not to use health care resources which are unnecessary. That applies not just to the physician, I will define that at some length earlier, but also to each and every one of us. I'm not going to toss out before you certain examples, but let me just take two. Where in any conception of Christian justice would you place concierge medicine or boutique medicine? Where? How? Again, the specious argument that, well, I limit the number of patients so I can give them better care. I've been around medicine long enough to know that that doesn't ring true. Sure, it's an easier way to practice, less trauma, less stress, more money. Now I get really annoying. What about for-profit medicine? If healthcare is not a commodity, is profit ever justifiable from it? Now obviously, physicians need an income and so on. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the investment and the owning your own hospital and all the rest of it. The conflicts of interest, of financial interest, are enormous today. Well, at this point, you probably said, I wish he'd stop raving and ranting, and I'm going to. You've been kind enough to listen, and only a few have left to catch those planes. <laughs> uh, all I've tried to say is this. John Kilner's question is one that will be recurrent. Once more, I look to the Christian physician I've been disappointed in the past to stand for, not necessarily the way I put it, but to stand against, if you will, these impulses to make us something other than we are, focused on the needs of individual patients confronting us and their families, of course, but all things in order. John has moved down to the front, and the body language suggests that I'm finished. Right, John? And I, and I am finished. Let me just say that I think if we reflect on it and see the conflicts between the various varieties of justice, that we could probably unscramble it, that we can satisfy both, and that we can actually do what the AMA suggests we do, uh, but more importantly, as I see it, what our traditions tell us when those traditions are refined and when we're faithful to them, we're all, all about. Thank you very much. That was the late Dr. Edmund Pellegrino on the needs of the patient versus the needs of others from our 2002 conference, 
Bioethics at the Bedside. Our 30th annual conference, The Christian Stake in Bioethics Revisited, is coming up June 22 through 24 and will be available to attend in person, online, or on demand. Register now at cbhd.org. You've been listening to the Bioethics Podcast, project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, copyright 2023, all rights reserved. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity is a Christian bioethics research center at Trinity International University, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, cbhd.org, has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the center and to support the work of the center, projects like this podcast, please visit our website, cbhd.org. My name is Matthew Epinette, and I'm the executive director of the center. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast. Thank you.